Welcome to Revolution in Ideology. I am Nick. I'm Jared. And today we are talking about cars, which is an interesting topic because it's one of the subjects that Jared and I are torn on because we are both car guys into trucks and sports cars, and we both sold cars at different times in our lives and bought and sold, and etc. But as far as the technology is concerned, we both absolutely despise the automobile. And for me, it's about thinking about the ways that the proliferation of the automobile has really impacted the trajectory of human social life, impacting everything from urban planning to our relationship with the environment, climate, and each other, and so forth. What do you think? Yeah, I'm excited to dig into this. We've been thinking about it for a long time, um, given, um, well, at least my growing antipathy for the automobile and everything that it's done in terms of like city planning, in terms of resource usage, in terms of fostering rugged individualism and social stratification. Um, I Again, I, I'll use the term, I can't think of a more irrational invention in all of human history. It has been something that we thought improved our lives. We're still under the auspices. We've romanticized it. But in reality, it's made things exponentially worse for literally every living thing on this planet. And um, as Nick said, we're a little bit hypocritical in this in that we both own automobiles and in some ways um, we definitely used to like them and, 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 and have nice ones and things along those lines. But um, but that's changing relatively quickly. They are they're terrible. Um, that's where I'm at. And so I'm excited to dig into um uh, deconstruction of the automobile and its impact on humanity. So we are sort of getting our feet wet with a brief article. It's actually really approachable titled The Social Ideology of the Motor Car. It was published in 1973 and written by Andre Gortz. It was printen, uh, printed in the journal Le Sauvage, which is French for the wild. I can't do French. It's like one of the languages. Cannot do it. Um, and it was a French periodical uh, that was focused on ecological issues. If you've never heard of Andre Gortz, he lived between 1923 and 2007. So just think about that lifetime for a second regarding the proliferation of the automobile, right? From 1923 to 2007. So he witnessed like the whole span of how this invention changed humanity. Uh, and he was based in Europe. So he saw it, you know, firsthand in Paris, et cetera. Uh, he was Austrian and French philosopher. He was one of the leading thinkers in Europe of the new left movement. So like the latter part of the 20th century, he was uh, friends with Sartre and et cetera, uh, really influential uh, French philosopher. So he wrote this article, The Sociology of the Motor Car. Uh, and he makes a few points through here that are really interesting. It's only about, I think, six pages long, and we'll post a link to it. So if you want to read the whole thing, uh, it doesn't take long at all. And it's just a good jumping off point, I think. So the first point he makes is that the automobile was designed as a luxury good. He says, quote, unlike the vacuum cleaner, the radio or the bicycle, which retain their use value when everyone has one, the car, like a villa by the sea, is only desirable and useful insofar as the masses don't have one. This is an interesting argument that is basically that the car is only really useful if everyone doesn't have one, if only uh, select percentage of the population has one, because then it can serve its function as it should, of uh, drastically increasing transportation times and making things more convenient. But the instant that the entire population, more or less, has access to an automobile, then all the benefit that one gets by owning and operating an automobile 
is completely removed, right? The second that so many people have cars that it's bumper to bumper traffic, then owning a car is a complete waste of time, essentially is his argument. And he said, so they were marketed originally, right, to the wealthy elite as, you know, this is a machine that will drastically improve your life and make transportation uh, much faster and et cetera, right? Give you your time back. But then it's the second that the masses had one and it became marketed to the masses, uh, right? You mentioned earlier, Henry Ford and so forth. Then it basically lost all of its benefits. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, 100% agreement. I mean, everyone that is listening to this, watch this is sat in traffic at some point and knows how um, rage inducing it is. And for some people, that's their daily existence. We're both a little bit fortunate and we're not in the most traffic heavy places on the planet. We're not in Los Angeles or uh, Beijing or I don't, I don't know. I'm just pulling cities out of out of out of thin air at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Places I think of like just just bogged down in traffic, Dallas, Houston, etc. Um but we've experienced it enough to, to really understand like this is this is something that that I mean, even that privilege comes through when you're sitting in that situation, like it's about me and I'm guilty of this and you're guilty of it. We're all guilty of this. Like, why are all these people here? I want them off the road. I want them to go home. I want them out of my way. And it is it's kind of like this this privilege that you assume you should have because you're in an automobile and I have places to go wherever that might be. It's work. It's a basketball game. It's whatever. Like those are the types of things that we're thinking about. But since everybody is also thinking about that way, that that efficiency that was sold originally back in the turn of the 20th century, that's gone. That doesn't exist anymore. Everyone has a car. The highways are packed. We're not saving any time. We're not saving any resources. Um, it's almost like maybe, I mean, it also makes me think of like moving forward in progress in terms of like, like I think of the Jetsons and all those like little, everyone has their own personal like, like flying car and things along mm-hmm. those lines. It'd be the same thing there, right? Like if everyone mm-hmm. had a private jet, it's all no longer a thing that's efficient anymore, right? So. Right. Yeah. Imagine the time you would spend circling airports waiting for a spot right. to land if yeah. everyone had a jet. Right. Like, exactly. Perfect example. He says, quote, why is the car treated like a sacred cow? Why, unlike other private goods, isn't it recognized as an antisocial luxury? The answer should be sought in the following two aspects of driving. So he's getting us two points on why the automobile is a critique like many other things. The first one he says is, Mass motoring affects an absolute triumph of bourgeois ideology on the level of daily life. It gives and supports in everyone the illusion that each individual can seek his or her own benefit at the expense of everyone else. Take the cruel and aggressive selfishness of the driver, who at any moment is figuratively killing the others, who appear merely as physical obstacles to his or her own speed. This aggressive and competitive selfishness marks the arrival of universally bourgeois behavior and has come into being since driving has become commonplace. You'll never have a socialism with that kind of people, an East German friend told me, upset by the spectacle of Paris traffic. What are your thoughts on that? I don't have a lot because it's fire. I mean, he says it all right there, like essentially like that's what the automobile, aggressive selfishness, killing the others, right? Um, And it does, it turns everyone, it is antisocial because it turns everyone Mm -hmm. around you that you're sharing this space with. In this case, it's an interstate or a highway or even just a boulevard through a neighborhood. It turns them into, um, for modern terms, he wouldn't have used this, into like NPCs. And they are just in the way of your quest. (laughs) Whatever whatever that quest is, they're in the way. And they're not not individual humans with their own emotions Mm -hmm. and agency and things along those lines. And we're all guilty Mm -hmm. of this again. 
I am 100% guilty of this. I cannot stand anyone else being on the road at the same time as me. Either they're driving too slow and they're in my way, or maybe they're driving too fast and they're exerting their aggression, or maybe they're driving a big, um, again, my, my favorite car to pick on, the giant pickup truck with the big tires and things along those lines and the Confederate flag or the don't tread on me, don't step on snake flag or whatever. Like these people just even their existence at this point in time, like I've gotten pretty bad about it. Like them even existing pisses me off, which is not a healthy emotion. Like Mm -hmm. if you meet that person um, face to face in maybe a bar or a restaurant or something, you'll have a conversation with them. But the minute you're in your car and they're in their car, they are, they're NPCs that are in the way of my quest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hugely antisocial, right? And it dehumanizes the other, which is like, such a weird thing to think about. And like you said, every single one of us is guilty of this. When you're on the highway and you need to pass someone, it's not, you're not thinking about this human being, right? You're just thinking about an obstacle that is in your way. It's completely, yeah, dehumanized them. It removes their humanity. You know what I mean? His second point, quote, the automobile is the paradoxical example of a luxury object that has been devalued by its own spread. But this practical devaluation has not yet been followed by an ideological devaluation. The myth of the pleasure and benefit of the car persists. Though if mass transportation were widespread, its superiority would be striking. The persistence of this myth is easily explained. The spread of the private car has displaced mass transportation and altered city planning and housing in such a way that it transfers to the car functions which its own spread has made necessary. An ideological cultural revolution would be needed to break the circle. Obviously, this is not to be expected from the ruling class, either right or left. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? So there are other channels that do this much better than us and probably much better than what we're seeing in this article from the 1970s. And I will shout them out here um, Mm -hmm. because we watch them and and, and drive some of our content or will be driving some of our content from them. Um, Adam something as well as not just bikes. They're two of my favorite channels and they really go into the nuts and bolts of city planning and the proliferation of suburbs and what that means um, for basically as, 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 as Gord say, the displacement of mass transportation and what that means for, again, like social relationships, what that means for relationships with the environment, what that means for like the development of the city itself and what we value. All of that has been changed um, undoubtedly for the worse, right? Like suburbia um, is terrible. It's terrible in so many different ways in terms of use of space, resource usage, again, separating people out, all of those types of things that we've been talking about so far. I 100% agree. And the fact that he's seeing this in the seventies, I mean, it's not necessarily like a watershed moment. Like I think at least I know he's writing from Europe, but I mean, here in the U S it was, um, the interstate thing became um, popular under Eisenhower, but we already saw, Mm -hmm. we already saw that kind of displacement and things going on, um, 20 years before this. But again, it's very important that we're having this conversation because I, I think it's one of the most overlooked things. What's the way humans use space says everything about their values. And that's been true for all of human history, right? You can see that. You put up city walls back in the ancient world, it's because you value whatever your surplus is and you're trying to protect it. Um, you build a giant uh, ziggurat in a Babylonian city or something like you, it shows that you value, in this case, your priest class or whatever. Well, the way we use space now is very much the same. Like you can tell the value of a society by how it uses space. And at this point in time, it's very clear, especially in North America, maybe even more so than Europe, definitely more so than Europe, um, as we're witnessing it, that we value this thing over people, like over people, over wildlife, over everything else, this thing, like we will literally plan our entire cities around making sure automobiles have their place. And that is a wildly irrational thing to do. 
Well, I love he mentions here, right, not, not as many words, that the things that we say exist as an excuse for the requirement of the automobile were 100% caused by the automobile, right? He says, uh, transfers to the car functions which its own spread has made necessary, right? So we say, well, I have to have a car. It's a, rec- it's a requirement because I have to drive 30 minutes to my job. Well, the reason you have to drive 30 minutes to your job is because of the automobile, right? right? That never would have been a thing if the automobile hadn't been invented. Now, of course, I'm not going to say you wouldn't have had to ride a horse to your wherever you needed to do something or whatever, right? But the fact that our lives are now so spread out, we'll get to this in a minute, like the proliferation of suburbia, but like the interstate system that you mentioned that became obviously spread throughout every country uh, for the most part at this point, uh, all of these were only made possible and came into being as a result of, you know, this piece of technology that is the automobile and it's marketing to the masses, for sure. And it's not even just like about like, oh, what are we going to go back to, riding horses and buggies? Like, I, I don't know where this article is going with this, but but no, that, that's that's not what we're, we're talking about. Like something as simple as being able to have everything um, that you really need within a couple of like city blocks, the way it used mm-hmm. to be. And the way it still is in some very like tight-knit urban areas, um, I can go get my groceries without having to get into a car or ride a horse. I can literally walk there um, and my school and my job. And all of this is within a feasible like walking distance, right? Like, so walking is the first step. We'll get to mass transportation and those other options later. Mm-hmm. But like at least having your basics, the basic needs of your life within a walking distance, that's the first thing that the car stripped from us. Yep. Uh, the other big point here that I think people often overlook because, um, you know, Adam something, I think it was Adam something has a really good video on the right political leaning parties of the United mm-hmm. States and how they have, you know, marketed the car as the symbol of freedom and how, you know, environmentalists attack on the automobile is basically attack on our individual freedom. And his point here, Gort's point in the 1970s even, is that while we think that it creates freedom for us, what it really does is create absolutely like crippling dependency. And so his quote is, quote, here's the paradox of the automobile. It appears to confer on its owners limitless freedom, allowing them to travel when and where they choose at a speed equal or greater to that of the train. But actually, the seeming independence has for its undesired underside a radical dependency. Unlike the horse rider, the wagon driver or the cyclist, the motorist was going to depend on the fuel supply, was going to depend for the fuel supply as well as for the smallest kind of repair on dealers and specialists in engines, lubrication and ignition, and on the interchangeability of parts. The apparent independence of the automobile owner was only concealing the actual radical dependency. And then he continues later on, for the first time in history, people would become dependent for their locomotion on a commercial source of energy thoughts. It's so good because again, we've been talking about this, um, among just myself and you that, that the idea of freedom, right? Like this is, this is just a romantic notion that is produced as a narrative to sell more cars and to justify oil consumption or fossil fuel consumption, or, or now of course, mining all the various minerals we need to make these batteries for, for, for Tesla's and, and, and Rivian's and whatever else that we're, we're, we're proposing as a solution, which are anything but a viable solution. Um, but that we'll say for another episode when we deconstruct like the electric car and things along those lines. It is 
I mean, it has to be understood at this point in time how much, how dependent we are because of the automobile. And I, I don't understand why. I guess it's frustrating for why so many people, at least I know and interact with in my life and see, of course, in our popular narratives and films and things along those lines. This is the antithesis to freedom. The automobile is the antithesis to freedom. You are either at the pump or at the charging station. You are either at the mechanic um, or you're waiting on parts or you're at the DMV getting the, uh, all your registration and your licenses and all these other things. And then you're on the phone with the insurance company. And then when you actually inevitably do have an accident, then you're at the you're at the mercy of, of the insurance companies and then, of course, the other driver and dealing with their insurance companies and et cetera, et cetera. I could literally list dozens and dozens of things that we have to do just to keep our cars I mean, our cars are, we, we take care of our cars the way we take care of like our, our, our pets or maybe even for some people, our children. Um, like there is, they are balls and chain. They are the antithesis to freedom, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which is the other point I have here. My heading is it doesn't create the freedom that it promises. Right. And Gort says, quote, having been invented to allow its owner to go where he or she wishes at the time and speed he or she wishes, the car becomes of all vehicles, the most slavish, risky, undependable, undependable and uncomfortable. Even if you leave yourself an extravagant amount of time, you never know when the bottlenecks will get you there, will let you get there. You are bound to the road as inexorably as the train to its rails. No more than the railway traveler can can you stop on impulse. And like the train, you must go at a speed decided by someone else. Summing up, the car has none of the advantages of the train and all of its disadvantages, plus some of its own. Vibration, cramped space, the danger of accidents, the effort necessary to drive it, He continues, the truth is no one really has any choice. You aren't free to have a car or not because the suburban world is designed to be a function of the car. And more and more, so is the city world. And keep in mind, this was 1973. At this point, every large city is now fully designed around the car, right? But he's right. Like even 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 if we take away the the mechanics and the DMVs and hanging out at the dealership, which is always a pleasant pleasant experience, as as we all know. Even if we take all that stuff away, merely what he's saying here is that that time that we think we have to take while we're waiting for the train or waiting for the bus or all those other things that we say is limiting our freedom. It's the same thing in the car, right? Every stoplight you say, which of course every city now has a hundred, dozens of stoplights. I mean, where 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 I live, they they put in lights every I don't know two, three, four hundred meters at this point in time. So like mm-hmm. the point, like if I, I go 200, 300, 200, 300 meters, I stop and I have to wait there for, I don't know. It's not long, but it's, it adds up 45 seconds or a minute. I don't even know. I'm sure there's studies out there that we could look up how much time does humanity, um, or at least the average in this case, North Americans, since ours are the worst North Americans sit at stoplights. I promise. I promise it's exponentially longer than waiting for a train or a bus. Um, so even that, like that idea of saving time for that individual trip, that's, that's a falsehood. That's a falsehood. So what is his solution here? And he says, he gives us a solution that really isn't a solution. It's kind of tongue in cheek. And, you know, the car's proliferation has made it virtually unusable because traffic has congested ever, every major city, right? Like we just talked about. He says, quote, if the car is to prevail, there is still one solution. Get rid of the cities. That is, string them out for hundreds of miles along enormous roads, making them into highway suburbs. That's what's been done in the United States. Now, obviously, this isn't a real solution, right? Urban planning in the United States has clearly followed this trend. Right. And this, there's like, okay, we see this roads are congested. We see that there's traffic in cities. Well, let's just string cities out along interstates and let's continue to add lanes and let's, we'll just continue to design the landscape, right, to terraform the entire earth to accommodate the automobile. And we all know that this does not work. 
right? I think it's actually Adam something that has a really good video. Just like, one more, just one more lane, yeah. just one more lane, just one more lane. Get along. Yeah, why adding lanes does yeah. not solve the problem, right? Um, and I just have a note in here to mention, there's really two good documentaries here. Um, one's called The End of Suburbia, and then the director made a sequel called Escape from Suburbia. And it's exactly about all of this, peak oil and the design of suburbia in the United States. So check those out if you're interested in more. And then I just did some research on my own because I was curious, basically what you were just talking about, uh, how much time do we actually spend in cars? And so I looked at a lot of different research studies and surveys, and they're all around within, you know, plus or minus 10 or 15 minutes that the average American from the United States spends about one hour driving per day. And they're on average about 30 miles per day. So just to do a little math, so you don't have to do it yourself, that's seven hours a week or 365 hours per year, or roughly three to five years of your life, you will spend behind the wheel of a car. Now, keep in mind that only includes driving, not everything else that Jared just mentioned, right? Sitting at the repair shop and buying tires and dealing with the insurance company and on and on and on and on. Everything that's required to keep your car running on the road and everything that you have to deal with for that to happen, that doesn't even include that. Just literally driving your car, you will spend an hour per day doing that on average. Now, I was also curious to see what was average in Europe, and it's actually 40 minutes a day. So you might think of that and like, oh, well, that's not that much. That's difference, right? That's still a lot. There's still 40 minutes in the car. But over a lifetime, that is one to two years less that Europeans will spend in a car versus citizens of the United States, which is really interesting. What do you have to say about that? I mean, I was going to switch which switch topics for just a second, but time, mm-hmm. time, time is of the time is of the essence, of course. But no, time is of the essence <laughs> here because well, because that's one of the biggest things that like that's one of the biggest sales pitches, right? There's the romantic notions which we'll probably deal with in another video, like what does the car represent in terms of like narrative, our ethically constitutive stories, and things along those lines, especially ones that are much stronger here. Again, as I pick on North America more so than I do Europe regarding like again that go west and rugged individualism and i need my whatever my freedom quote unquote um you know every every chevy or ford commercial you can think of right like those types of things that that we consider so time is one of those big things that i think like that's it doesn't it doesn't add up right like the math just dictates like that's it does not save us any sort of time right but it makes us feel like we are because we somehow feel more in control rather than being on a train where there's a driver and it's on these tracks and things along those lines. Well, I dictate my time because I'm the one steering and I'm the one that's going and picking my route and all those other types of things without realizing that like every choice you make is a wrong one because of the way the city was planned in and of itself. So you're not actually saving those time. So even though you're the one making the choices, those choices aren't actually saving you any time, but we're under the illusion that it is because I'm making the choice, not the train driver, not the other passengers that might have a brief, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a scenario here where a passenger, other passengers somehow affect your time. Maybe they Mm -hmm. have an emergency or something. I don't know. But like, but that's the thing that we don't really take into consideration. And of course, like, this is where I'm going for all that time we're saving. Like, what are we really giving up? It's not just, of course, um, the changes to our cities, the changes to our lifestyles, the effect on our pocketbook, which we haven't even gotten to yet. But, um, and I don't know that we will in this episode, but how much more does an automobile cost than, for the individual, we know what it costs society. We've been talking about that, but what does it cost the individual in comparison to riding a bus or a train or, or taking a bike or walking or any of those things? I mean, it's exponential, right? Like we know that. 
but the human cost. I think that's what we're losing sight of. And he mentioned it. He mentioned it real briefly. He talked about safety. And I obviously just pulled this up real quick from NSC um, that tracks like deaths by transportation strictly for the United States. But again, United States being one of the biggest perpetrators of, of auto automobile culture, probably should call it out. I don't even have like all of the numbers here in front of me, but it appears to be on their charts here between 2007 and 2020 automobiles clearly obviously represent more deaths than all other forms of transportation combined by at least it looks to be 11 to 12 times maybe even more than that based on the figures i'm seeing here at least the chart i'm looking at here so like the danger we put ourselves in for this illusion Again, this is where I keep using this term irrational. There's never been a more irrational thing that humans have used, at least not in my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is like the illusion of control, right? You, like, it's so, like he mentions earlier, right? This paradox between we feel like it gives us control over our lives, we feel like it gives us freedom. Yeah. But just by adopting this as our mode of transportation, we're eliminating so much control and freedom from our lives that most of us are completely unaware of. Right. And that's all a result of like the narrative, this the ideology that he mentioned early on. OK, so what is the solution according to Gortz? He doesn't really give us a real one other than uh, briefly. He says, quote, so the jig is up. No, but the alternative to the car will have to be comprehensive for in order for people to be able to give up their cars. It won't be enough to offer them more comfortable mass trans- transportation. They will have to be able to do without transportation altogether because they'll feel at home in their neighborhoods, their community, their human sized cities. And they will take pleasure in walking from work to home on foot or if need be by bicycle. No means of fast transportation and escape will ever compensate for the vexation of living in an uninhabitable city in which no one feels at home or the irritation of only going into the city to work or, on the other hand, to be alone and sleep. Thoughts on that? I'm still looking at this death chart, but definitely. Well, because I'm sorry to I'm sorry to hijack our episode a little bit here, but it did get me thinking a little bit. Like this chart has even like gun deaths on here, and automobiles absolutely destroy gun deaths, which is some saying something in the United States, right? Like, oh yeah, I don't have the the data, but I'm fairly certain that automobile deaths is the third leading cause of death in the United States. So in 2020, this so heart disease and cancer, I might think that's- Yeah, there's 45,000 gun deaths, gun-related deaths in the United States, and and on death by automobile was so much exponent. It was it was mm-hmm. out of control. It was out of control. They, like, yeah. I, sorry, I, like, I got a little bit lost on this. Let's get this this episode back on track. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it goes heart disease, cancer, automobile deaths. I'm pretty sure those are the leading three the thing, in the here's US. Here's the irony of this, as, we, as, as they try so hard to protect this narrative, We'll have a war on some of these other things, right? We we are debating gun gun discussions regarding the Second Amendment and things along those lines. Like as a nation state, I don't we don't necessarily as listeners care where you 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 fall on that side of the line at this moment in time. But the fact that that's even a debate is a thing. There is no debate on the automobile, which is mm-hmm. clearly even more dangerous, right? Like so, we won't even we're not even to a point where we'll have that debate, right? And that's how far gone we are down this rabbit hole of like the car. And like I said, all of the various sociological, psychological, and now uh, like ideological attachments to it, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's how far we won't even debate it. Like there is no war on, on, on traffic, right? There's a war on drugs and there's a war on, on terror and there's a war on no war on, but which, which is the most dangerous? Like the automobile is actually the most dangerous. Like the data bears this out. So anyway, mm-hmm. it's interesting that we, I went down this like little sidetrack and that's my fault. But regardless, we'll come back to that topic. What is the solution? So he says, and I'll kind of repeat a little bit what Nick was saying here. 
No, but the, the alternative of the car will have to be comprehensive. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. It's not just about like, just all of a sudden cars have to go away. There has to be a whole new like ethic attached to it. Um, and that part of that ethic is going to be a change in ideology as well. And it's going to have to be, uh, I, God, man, I'm going to sound very like totalitarian here, but it might have to be imposed a little bit. Like it's going to have, because people are not going to make this choice on their own, right? We are socialized into this love affair we have with the automobile, right? Is a thing. And, and, and Nick and I get it. Cause we also have a little bit of this love affair. We like cool cars and all that other stuff. We do, we do like this. So it's going to have to be imposed. I don't know what that imposition looks like. Does it look like um, just like raising the price of, of, of fuel to something that is unaffordable? Is it legislation? Is it, I, I don't know what that looks like, but I would agree 100% with his assertion that it has to be comprehensive because things have gotten to the point of, they've always been this way, but we didn't know back in the, the turn of the century. Um, unsustainable. It's unsustainable, not just ecologically, that's obvious, but it's unsustainable in so many other ways in terms of mm -hmm. like how we're building these cities and things along those lines. So. Okay. Last quote from Gortz. He says, meanwhile, what is to be done to get there? Above all, never make transportation an issue by itself. Always connect it to the problem of the city, of the social division of labor, and to the way this compartmentalizes the many dimensions of life. One place for work, another for living, a third for shopping, a fourth for learning, a fifth for entertainment. The way our space is arranged carries on the disintegration of people that begins with the division of labor in the factory. It cuts a person into slices. It cuts our time, our life, into separate slices so that in each one you are a passive consumer at the mercy of the merchants. So that it never occurs to you that work, culture, communication, pleasure, satisfaction of needs, and personal life can and should be one and the same thing a unified life sustained by the social fabric of the community. Thoughts on that? I think, I think he said it perfectly. I don't have anything to add. I think that that is actually important. All right. So that's our first episode. Uh, one of many, I'm assuming on the automobile and sort of history, sociology, the way that it impacts our daily life uh, and everything related to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you like that episode, consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. I am Nick. I'm Jared. Later. <laughs>